This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House podcast. I have goosebumps before this one has even begun, (laughs) so I know it's going to be such a special one. Today, I have Nicole Moore-Joseph with me, and today we're going to be sharing a real-life story. If you haven't already listened to our last episode with clinical psychologist Dr. Massimo, we started introducing this concept of high libido and how an unnaturally high libido can actually be a sign of something deeper. Now, Nicole is the perfect person to take us to the depths of reality on this journey because on the Open House podcast, there is nothing more beautiful than lived experience and being able to learn from someone who has lived it The doctors can help, the practitioners can help, but truly listening to and connecting with someone who has been on that journey, who is on that journey, that is where I think the true healing can begin. So I am so excited to have Nicole here with us today. She was diagnosed with fantasy sex addiction in 2015, and she's going to tell you about this. It's not my story to tell. She is going to share this with you, but it took a couple of years for her to come to a formal diagnosis. And she's going to share how that journey took a couple of twists and turns before she got to where she needed to be. Now, as you all know, this is something that I think I've also experienced firsthand with someone that I've dated. And I think that this is such an overlooked topic in today's society. I think it's under the radar. I think drug addiction, I think shopping addiction, I think exercise addiction, they're all spoken about. They're all out there. But sex addiction just seems to lie under the radar a little bit more. So, hi, Nicole. I am so happy for you to be here with us today. And I just love to hear how you are, how you're feeling, and if you're ready to get into what's going to be a very special podcast. Hi, Louise. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I am so happy to be here. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. I wanted to share with you how I came across your podcast because it's so special to me. I had reached out to a friend of mine. So I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I reached out to a friend of mine in California. And I said, listen, if you know of anyone with a podcast that focuses on healing and triumphing over your struggles, please consider me, like let them know about me. And she said, I don't have anyone in mind, but I'll keep you posted. I said, okay. The next day she sent me one of your reels about fantasy bonding. No way. Yes. And I responded, All I could respond with was a sad face because I read it and I just, I was like, oh my God, I know what that feels like. You know what I mean? And so I responded with a sad face and she goes, reach out to them about getting on an episode. (laughs) I was like, okay. And I literally, I read her response and I got out of IG and I just typed the email right there and I just sent it. I was like, okay. And I just... Oh my god! I know. And then four hours later, he responded. That is and divine was, timing. Yes. Yes. And I obviously went through your page and I was listening to some of the clips and I said, yes, this is what, let's normalize healing from trauma and not being afraid to express 
what some older generations refer to as the dirty laundry. It's like, well, you got to take the laundry out if you want to clean it. Literally, I was about to make a really bad joke about how I just expect my boyfriend to do all of the laundry in there. <laughs> and then I was like, no, thousands of people listening to that portion at that point. You know? <laughs> oh my goodness. Actually, this is so crazy. Talking about divine timing, because I truly believe that you put that out there to God, to the universe, to source, whatever it is that you believe in. You put yeah. it out there. The next day, the answer was given to you, right? Like you yes. asked and you received. I got goosebumps again. And then yeah. just here, you are talking about laundry and dirty laundry. And I just looked to the right of me and there's a washing line outside with... I can't even tell you, like 15 of the same t-shirts, like all hung up, just like white vest. And I, I've lived here for a while. I've never, ever seen laundry hung on that line. So I feel like that same source, that same power is here, just being like little things, little signs. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love that too. And yeah. I think to start, it's really mm -hmm. interesting that you saw that reel around fantasy bonding, because I think that is something that so many people relate to every single time mm. we've spoken about it. And we did talk about the psychology of fantasy bonding on a podcast. Mm. We've never gone into the fine line between fantasy bonding and sex or mm. fantasy bonding and anything to do with sex addiction. Yeah. So I guess to start, I would love it if you could just share with me like a little bit about your journey. You call yourself a recovering fantasy sex addict. Yeah. What does that mean? Is that different to being a traditional sex addict? What is fantasy sex addiction? That's a great question. So I like to start off by saying that there are actually 10 different types of sex addiction. And one of them is fantasy sex addiction. And the definition of fantasy sex addiction is when you are unable to engage sexually with your partner without fantasizing about something else. And so I had been living that in my marriage. We've been married for 13 and a half years now. I want to say like the first 10 years of my marriage, it was impossible for me to have sex with my husband without fantasizing about someone else. And prior to getting married, I had decided to abstain from sex for about two years because I wasn't gaining anything from the sexual experiences that I was having. It was leaving me at a deficit. Um, I also started to dig into my faith a little bit more as a Christian. And so when I met my husband, he had been abstaining from sex as well. And so after we got married, I was shocked <laughs> to discover that I was not able to respond to him in the way that I was expecting because I was very attracted to him. He's a great kisser. I was familiar with his anatomy, even though we weren't sexually active. Like, I knew that this was going to be a good match. And so, yeah, that's how I came to the definition of fantasy sex addiction. And that's how I was experiencing it, but I didn't realize I was experiencing it. That is fascinating. And I think yeah. before I've even met you, I didn't even know that that was a thing. So I'm sure people yeah. listening will already have learned something. And I guess my question for you was, did you feel any sort of compulsions to engage in the sex because it meant that you could then engage in the fantasy? Or was it that just every time you were intimate, you would go to a place of fantasy? That's a great question. So I want to give a precise answer to something that I heard you say in there. You talked about wanting to engage in sex to have the fantasy. I actually wanted to avoid sex so that I could fantasize. Because mm. if I fantasized, I was in full control. Everything was at my disposal. Everything that was happening was at my disposal. And then there were times where it was like the fantasy was so good that I then wanted to have sex so that I can incorporate a man in the actual fantasy. And that's a really another great question you asked about how does it show up in your daily life? So it wasn't just in the bedroom. The way that you know you have an addiction is that it makes your life unmanageable. I was fantasizing all day. I would be washing. This is an example I use often because it's such a vivid memory. I would be washing the dishes, having a fantasy, and my husband would come and ask me a question and I'd be mad at him because he interrupted the fantasy. Mm. So addiction is a response to pain. And there were so many unhealed wounds and trauma that I experienced from my childhood and in my teenage years that I was just using it as a coping mechanism throughout the day. I was late for work. There would be times where 
and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I had started fantasizing about someone that I was working with and I would, on my break, I'd be in the bathroom masturbating, thinking about this person and I'd be late for work. I almost lost my marriage. There were so many things that were unraveling because of the addiction. So it wasn't just in the bedroom. It was ruining my life. I couldn't turn it off. And some fantasy relationships would last for years. Oh my goodness. I have had goosebumps the whole time <laughs> we've been talking, which I think means we're doing something something really special here. Yeah. You're right. There is so much for us to get into. And you just said two things there that I thought were fascinating that I'd love for us to talk about first. Now, the first one is this concept of control. I love that you've just referenced this concept of control because I think that this is what we are starting to learn more about in today's society is that addiction is often just, like you said, a response to pain, but also a way to regain control over feeling totally out of control over life. And that might be that you're out of control over something going on in the moment. It can also be that existential crisis of childhood trauma leading to just this total lack of safety where the world feels scary and you need to be able to control it. And what I've learned in my line of work is we are all trying to control our reality in some way. Everyone is trying to control something, whether that is the food you eat. You know, the eating disorder is the ultimate control addiction. Whether you are trying to control the pain through the moments of endorphin highs that you get from running, the moments of drug highs that you get from taking the drug, you are also trying to control the pain just through a slightly different way. It's about escapism. So I really, really love that you've touched on that because I think that is at our core what we're talking about here with addiction. And I would love for you to just tell me a little bit around how did you connect the dots around this fantasy bonding, this fantasy sex addiction coming from a place of control? Because there must have been a place initially where you didn't have that conscious awareness, right? And you just felt like, I don't know, tell me, when this first started, did you just think that this was what life and sex was about, that everyone had these fantasies? At what point did you know, like, oh my goodness, something deeper here is going on? That would be... I'd say the point that I realized something deeper was happening was when I was diagnosed. And as far as the control part, I didn't realize that until I started healing. It's one thing when you are a substance abuser, when you're addicted to a substance, you need something physical to go after, right? But with fantasy sex addiction, I don't need anything. I need nothing physical. All I need is my mind. So sometimes it would be on in the background. And it became a lifestyle. So when I was diagnosed in 2015, at the time, my husband and I had been married for five years. And we had been arguing just about every day. And I'm talking about those exhaustive arguments where you're like, oh my God, I can't take anymore. And we didn't call each other out of each other's name. It wasn't vicious, but it was just intense because we weren't speaking the same language because I was an addict and I was afraid of intimacy but I didn't know it. Oh. When you are an addict, you're petrified of intimacy. Oh, look on your face. I love it. <laughs> Maybe like the only time I've ever been silent in the last 20 years of my life. Yeah. Wow. So actually, not only was this a control thing for you where you could be fully in control, but also it was a protective thing. Because oh, yeah. by being in control, you didn't have to face up to the pain that came when you weren't controlling those thoughts. Is that yes. right? Yes. It became my hiding place. And that's what addiction is. It's a place for you to hide from real intimacy. I feel like I'm going to cry. And <laughs> the reason for that is not only the vulnerability that you're sharing us with mm. this story, but also being able to tie it back to my own experience with an ex-boyfriend who went through so much trauma mm. as a child. I'm not going to share specifics because I don't want him to be able to be identified from this podcast, but so much trauma, so much nervous system dysregulation, deeply depressed and disassociated. And that's what I want to ask you in a minute is what happened before this and leading up sure, to it. Sure. But for him, like you, he, it was a lifestyle for him. He didn't even realize what was going on with him until I started dating him. And with love and compassion, I was able to say, hey, 
I love you, but this isn't objectively normal behavior of what's going on here. But what you said about the hiding place, that really hit me because he lived in a setup where his was probably more of a physical sex addiction. And so he would like have to go and hide in like different parts of the house to be able to go and do what he needed to do to be able to function. And so you explaining here that you went to hide in your mind, that word hide, it hit me hard because I could see where he would have to go and hide. And it got to places in our relationship where I just wanted to go to sleep at night. I didn't want to give him another blowjob. I didn't want to have sex. I was tired. So he would then, he didn't go and hide, but he would go to another room or he would go to the bathroom. And in essence, that's hiding, right? He was taking the addiction into private, into a physical space. And I think what is so fascinating here is that you're teaching me that place can also be in your mind. It doesn't have to just be a physical space. And I'd love to just understand from you, you know, for him, he was very depressed and disassociated without Mm -hmm. even realizing it before he started Mm -hmm. on this journey of healing. Was that similar for you or do you feel like you were more so in your head, which, oh my God, I am the most in your head person you will meet. So I cannot sympathize with you more. Like I have had years and years of horrendous health anxiety, which in some ways can be considered not too dissimilar to what you've gone through because your brain just bombards you with fantasies of the worst case scenarios that you can ever live and what's going to happen if this and blah, blah, blah. Where were you at physically in your life when these mental, I guess, like nightmare ultimately was going on in your head? I just love to understand the disconnect or the connect between like how you showed up physically and what was going on mentally, if there even was anything. That's a good question. I'm going to say what comes to mind. And if that doesn't answer the question, let me know so we can try to find it. But physically, I was high functioning. So when I was at work or talking to friends or involved in the community or volunteering with my church, you would never know. I could be watching a movie with my husband and have spent 45 minutes fantasizing right next to him on the couch. And here's what's interesting. When the depression of my life got really bad, because you know Mm -hmm. the cycles, you know what I mean? And that's the trap. You think you're free and then it comes back two months later. Mm. On those like valley moments in depression, low moments, that's when I would want to go be by myself. So I would be like out to lunch with a friend and plotting, okay, what fantasy am I going to use on the way home? Mm. What's the location? What am I wearing? What's the scenario? While I'm engaging in a conversation with my friend. And so then there would be some times where I'd have to ask them to repeat themselves because I wasn't able to fully listen. And that's also partly because, and I didn't know this until 2018 when I started seeing a different therapist, that um, I have ADHD. Oh. That, yes. That oh. plays a bit. Yes. <laughs> oh. Yes. And I read somewhere, I don't remember where, but I remember reading, and my therapist, my current therapist shared this with me as well, that people with ADHD can be more prone to addiction and particularly with sex addiction because the dopamine depletion. Our brain isn't producing enough of that dopamine. And so I'm like, I got to find my dopamine. So yeah. I have been learning a lot about this recently because Mm. although I haven't been diagnosed, I also show a ton of the traits of the undiagnosed female, slightly neurodivergent adult that sits within the ADHD category. And I also have once I had my gut tested and they said to me, oh, you have no dopamine whatsoever. So you have basically been like depressed your whole life, but you will have been using everything stimuli to keep you high functioning. Because me, like you, I am the most high functioning person in the world. Yeah. And then it made sense. Like, oh, that's why I go to the gym five times a week. That's why I do this. That's why I binge eat. All these things started to connect the dots for me that like, oh, maybe low dopamine could be driving some of these cycles. Now, again, I can't draw like a scientific conclusion there, but it's so interesting how that's also come up for you that potentially there could be like a root cause here. Your body is saying, I need dopamine. I need dopamine. I need dopamine. How can I get there? And for you, you realized, well, actually, I want to ask you, when did you realize that this fantasy 
or this fantasy bonding or whatever version of it was. When did you realize that could give you that dopamine hit? Like, when did this start? Were you a kid? Were you a teenager? Were you an adult? That's a great question. But I wanted to mention something that you just said that was really, really on target. So here's the thing. I believe that trauma puts you at a deficit. And I picture it as literally a hole in the ground. So for someone who doesn't have dopamine or very low production of dopamine and you're at a deficit, it's the perfect cocktail for addiction. And I actually just want to add something else on top of that because you are so spot on about trauma putting you in a deficit. And something I've been reading about lately, it's something called limerence. I'd be really curious if you've come across it. No. Okay. We need to get you on limerence. I just, it's basically, I would be intrigued to know if limerence is exactly the same as fantasy sex addiction. I think it's probably different in that it's more person focused. So you become like obsessed with one person. Like you put one person on a pedestal. You are obsessed with them. Everything is a fantasy about that person. You are constantly ready and waiting to meet them, what they're going to say to you, what you're going to wear. It definitely sounds like there's some overlap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It would sound to me like fantasy sex addiction is the grade school of a fantasy life. And limerence is the college level. So I was likely molested as a child. And the reason why I say likely is because though I don't have a memory of it, the way that my body was responding to examinations, Mm. my doctors actually said to me, have you been sexually abused? Mm. I was like, why would you ask me that? And they're like, well, based on the way that you're responding to our examination, we have to ask you. Also, I was exposed to pornography at a very young age. I don't even think I was eight and I had already seen porn. Wow. I remember being five years old and I was in kindergarten and I was telling the girls about rubbing on their vagina and how it makes you feel really good. And, oh, you guys can dance sexy for each other. Wow. I was five. Wow. Yeah. So there was a bed being made for it. There was a foundation being made for it. Mm. I didn't know what it was. Mm. I started watching pornography a little bit more when I had access to it. Somewhere between the age of 12 and 14, I had I was starting to have phone sex. I was finding ways to watch pornography because... We didn't have a cable house. We didn't have HBO or Cinemax. But when I went to grandma's house and she had the cable package and everybody was asleep, you know what I mean? The Skinemax after dark, soft porn. So again, it was a monster that was being fed. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting, I didn't even have sex until I graduated high school. Mm. So I wasn't promiscuous while I was in high school. Mostly because I saw the result of sex. I saw girls getting pregnant. I saw girls showing up to school and guys showing up to school. They're like, I think I might have got something. I need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, I don't want that in my life. But in my mind, I had this world of whatever I wanted. And so it started in childhood and then it got more refined. And as I got older, and this is what I realized in my healing. I didn't know this at the time. I would sexualize my connection with men. Now, there was a period where my father was out of the home from the age of three to seven. My parents are still married today, so they weren't divorced. It was for financial reasons. He went to another state because he needed to work to support the family. And that damaged me. It completely changed me. I missed him. And then on top of that, when he did come back in the home, My father, like culturally speaking, he wasn't at the time a very physically affectionate person because that's not what he got when he was growing up. But it left me lacking. It left me in a deficit because I didn't have that male attention. So I craved male attention. But as I got older, I was always really good with communicating with people, but I would sexualize my connection with men. And what I realized is because before I would just fantasize about like, oh, there's a picture of a man who's attractive in an ad. Boom, I would have a fantasy. What I realized was that the fantasies were more intense when it was with men that I knew, that I had intimate knowledge of. And so I make this joke that I was a monogamist addict. (laughs) I didn't have multiple quote-unquote fantasy partners. I would pick one person, and sometimes that fantasy relationship in my head would last for years. Wow. Yeah. Because this is limerence. I can't wait for you to read into limerence. I can't wait to read about it either. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to interject you there. No, it's fine. Connecting the dots there for me was like a big dot connector. And there's a, I think it's in one of the articles that I sent you, it talks about how like, you know, you hear stories about stalkers. The example it uses, which I think is really good, stalking a celebrity. And they're not just stalking them, but like showing up at their house and, oh, we're in love and we're this and we're having all of this obsessive, that person likely has an addiction or like you said, Limburns, I'm like really excited to look into this. I have so much to say here. First of all, (laughs) (laughs) let's go back. Let's go back a few steps because first of all, I don't want to brush over what you've just shared with me there about your childhood. I mean, I am so grateful for you being so vulnerable about something that is huge thing. And I've gone on a similar journey to you, which is that I have very bad pelvic pain. Like I have something called fibromyalgia. That's how I'm here on this podcast is because I tried everything and I finally stepped into the therapy room because someone said to me, oh, have you heard that repressed emotions can sit in your body? And the more and more doctors that I went to, I would be asked the same question. Do you have memories of being molested? Do you have memories of being abused? You know, this pelvic pain is what we see with victims of sexual abuse in childhood. So I just want to thank you for sharing that because a really, really sad thing is that abuse is so much more common than we think. Cannot tell you how many people I know that have gone through some kind of sexual or physical abuse as a child, but still no one will talk about it. It feels like the dirtiest, most shameful thing ever. And on top of that, what's even harder is that to this day, I don't know if I was abused, have no conscious memories of that. And that's something that that you said as well, which I think is so interesting is that you don't have any memories of that. And what I've learned is that we can block out the most painful things that ever happened to us. So we become adults with no memories of what happened. You've had a couple of memories around your father. We'll get into those. But we become adults just holding on with coping mechanisms, but not really being quite sure of the huge starting point of where they came from. And I think sometimes that can be really difficult to try and connect the dots without all of the information. So I just wanted to hold space there for how incredible you are doing at connecting those dots and doing it with like love and grace and kindness to yourself. And I think the other thing that I really wanted to pull out here was that what I was most fascinated with about limerency is that understanding that it starts with a psychological vulnerability And I think that is what you have just been talking about there is you have a psychological vulnerability in childhood. What is a psychological vulnerability? It's a pain, right? It's a pain. Someone is in pain about something. You didn't have your father. He wasn't there. When he was there, he didn't pick you up. Your nervous system was crying out for love and affection. Daddy wasn't there. You were probably dysregulated. You were in pain. Yes. Maybe add the sexual abuse into that. It doesn't almost even matter whether it was there or not because the father wound in in itself is enough to cause a psychological vulnerability. And then look, you are five, you are six, you are seven. You are coping in the only way you know how, which is that understanding that these fantasies, they take you out of the pain of the present moment. They take you out of the pain of your existence. Yes. Is any of that sort of heading home for you there? Yes, (laughs) all of it, all of it. It is like, I pictured myself in like a body of water and I'm standing and it's not so much that the water is getting higher, but that the floor is sinking. And I'm just like keeping my eyes to the sky. Like as long as I keep looking up, this water that's getting higher and higher won't take me out but it will. And the water, that is the overwhelm of life and pain. It is the weight. I was carrying an unnecessary weight of life Mm -hmm. because I was in the wrong hiding place. Mm. Now my hiding place is in Christ. I pray. My hiding place is also talking to my husband and not keeping my emotions bottled up. Mm. My hiding place is also talking to my therapist My hiding place is also journaling and letting it out. Sometimes my hiding place is, I can't deal with this emotion right now, and that's okay. I'm going to allow myself to feel sad. I'm going to allow myself to cry. I'm not going to feel guilty for being upset. I'm not going to feel guilty for whatever emotion it is. And as a mom, there are plenty to choose from. You know (laughs) what I mean? I am going to put this on a shelf for now and come back to it. And so 
I realized that I don't have an emotional contingency plan. I didn't have a plan for how to deal with my emotions. Because when you don't deal with it, it just piles up. It doesn't go away. Literally. <laughs> anyone that's not watching the video, I'm literally here just clicking my fingers like, yeah. Yes. Uh... It doesn't go away. If I just keep looking at the sky. No, you're going to drown. Oh. I'm like on the edge of crying and I will cry if I need to. But the reason that I feel so emotional, but the water, the water, I want to talk about the water. Okay. Now you have shared there about how you felt like the water, the weight of life was rising and rising and rising. Okay. And how many times do people listen to this? Because I said all the time, I say, I just feel like I'm treading water. I'm just trying to stay afloat. I'm just trying to stay afloat. I'm just trying to stay afloat. And then what I feel like is I'm pretty good at staying afloat. I've learned how to kick very quickly. I've learned how to juggle a million plates in one time. I've learned how to suppress, 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 and think that I'm talking about my emotions because I run a mental health podcast and blah, 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 blah. And the water rises up and up and up. And then, you know, it overwhelms you and you break down. It's too much. The reason that I want to cry about the water is because I have been having dreams recently and I've been very, very stressed recently. And I told you this before we started recording. I've been, wow. that water's been high, you know, it's been above my shoulder, but just below my chin. So I've been there like you, if I just look up and I just keep paddling, but I've been having dreams recently of tsunamis, big waves, oh, wow. big water. It, there's no way that I can look up at the sky, like you just said there and stay afloat. And I think that is the truth, isn't it? Is that sometimes there's just waves crashing that you can't pedal above, yes. you can't float above. And I want to ask you, we're talking here about how you've learned to manage this fantasy sex addiction, this psychological vulnerability through expression. That is one of the most important things that I think you've said today. I think that is where we will heal the world when we express what we have gone through and we learn to relieve the weight through expressing it outwards. I want to ask you, what did your expression of emotions look like for you in your childhood? You know, when you felt that pain around your father, did you cry about it? Did you say, I miss daddy? Like, how yes. did that show up for you? I'm a big communicator. Mm. I would cry. Mm. I would say, I miss daddy. That's what I remember most as a child. I would pretend to be other characters. I'd pretend to be a character from The Lion King. Oh. Anything that I had access to. Yeah, like I'd put on a show, like I'd perform. And then as I got older, I would write. I would write, I would write, I would write, I would write. I also sang, but I didn't really stick with singing that much. It was mostly writing. And I was a crier. I was not quiet about how I missed my father. Everybody knew. Everybody knew Nicole misses her daddy. Mm -hmm. It was very clear. And I actually, I credit my mother for that because my mother, she was so great at encouraging us to express ourselves. And my grandmother, whatever we would say with my grandmother, she's like, your children, they talk back. You know how that is like <laughs> children should be seen and not heard kind of thing. My mom is not like that. And I'm not like that with my children. But my grandmother was a bit like that. And my mother would let my grandmother say what she needed to say. And then she would ask, but did they disrespect you? And my grandmother would always be like, no. So I was very much a talker, very communicative about how I was feeling. I would cry. I would go to my mother and say, I miss daddy. And that's how I expressed myself and my emotions. And I'm so grateful that you've just shared that because I think sometimes we can get into a trap of thinking, oh, this person went through pain. You know, we've spoken about the pain point and they are trying to escape from that pain and they are trying to control it. And because they didn't feel the pain or talk about the pain, that is how they ended up here with an addictive coping mechanism. But you have actually just flipped that hypothesis on its head, which I think is so important for us to understand that you knew the pain, you acknowledged the pain, you communicated the pain, which is amazing. And I love that you grew up in a household where you could do that because I think so many people do not. But what we've just learned from you there is that you can do all of those things, but that doesn't take the pain away, right? You, right. Still, you still needed this coping mechanism to survive, yes. to cope, yes. even if you were communicating it. And in some ways, I'm so glad that you did communicate outwards because part of me is sat here thinking, 
I wonder where this addiction could have gone. Yes. If you never, ever said I miss daddy. I just, you know, and I have no idea. Again, it's I, so good. I'm not yeah. the expert, but I wonder yeah. if you never, ever, ever spoke about the pain, where could this addiction have gone? And that's not to say that I don't want to undermine your experience because wow, yeah. what you have gone through. No, is that's great. Incredible. I just think it's so interesting to connect the dots of the fact that you felt the pain. You acknowledged yes. the pain, you communicated the pain, but it yes. didn't take the fucking pain away. It no, didn't it didn't take the pain away, right? And here's the thing. I'm so glad that you said that because I believe that though I expressed the pain, the people that I was expressing it to, I don't believe that they knew or had the tools to help me through it. There was a time where probably in my late teens, early 20s, you hear about people saying things and they blame their parents. Now that I'm a mother and I'm married, I don't blame my parents for anything. My parents did the best that they could. I would express these things to my mom and she'd let me know my dad loves me and all those things, but she still has to leave me with a babysitter because she's working two jobs to help keep food. And so it's like she was stretched to capacity so that I could have food on the table. But when someone is dealing with that with a child, if the response is, let's create a plan to help cover those deficits. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, let's walk you through this on a daily basis. Maybe you need to talk to someone or we need to make a way for you to spend time with more of a male figure or see how we can make it to where you're visiting your father more. Or what. Because here's the thing, while all this was happening... My dad was having to manage being away from the family. And I know that that wasn't easy for him. And my mom was having to manage her husband being... So that everyone is stretched to capacity. And this is why it is so important. And we've gotten away from this as a more modern society. It takes a village. Yes. <laughs> Literally clapping over here. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes I think about, like, this commune living where you have a big plot of land and families with multiple homes. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yes. That is, I'm not saying that will work for everyone. And I'm not saying that we can't find a way to support one another in a more modern world. But my parents were, I can't talk about this without talking about what it was like to be raised by my parents. Because that had such a big role to play in it. You know what I mean? My parents were Jamaican immigrants. They came here and they built up from nothing. There was only so much that they could do. And when I think about the baby boomer generation... A lot of us were being raised by people who were just trying to, you know, just coming out of being birthed by people that came out of the Depression era. There's so much that gets passed down generationally. And it's like, they're so used to show up at work at 9 a.m., clock out at 5, keep it to yourself, keep your mouth shut, do your work and go home. Literally. How in the world are they going to come and parent a child that is falling to pieces because they're not home all day? They don't have the tools. But now that I'm an adult, it's my responsibility to locate those tools and be accountable to myself to use those tools and then pass that on to my children. And here's the thing, what's so beautiful about all this, the responsibility that I have applied to getting better, I learned from my parents. So they didn't necessarily give me the tools to know how to heal myself, but they damn sure gave me the tools to be responsible and stay committed to following through once I have located the tools. So, yeah. I think your point about intergenerational trauma is huge. You just broke it down there so well. Our parents parent us in the only way they know how, and your parents gave you good amount of love and support, doing the best that they could in a difficult situation to provide for the family. What I would also add to that is, I think it's just starting now. I think we will start to see this more in the next few generations, is understanding that the pain you were going through was impacting your nervous system, right? Your nervous system was lodging this trauma. It was holding onto it. And to escape from the pain, you had to go into your head and you had to go out there. What I would love to see in the next generation is being able to say to our children, I don't have any, but speaking for the collective, is saying, what do you need right now? And that covering not only what do you need to talk about, but what can I do to help your body be able to learn how to hold the pain more? Because maybe 
if we can help people talk about it and understand consciously what's going on, you know, Nicole's feeling lonely, abandoned, sad, all these things, but Nicole's body feels scared and alone and uncomfortable. And as a result of those two things coming together, Nicole's going to go and find a fantasy place in her head to go and feel safe. It's funny because we use that language in our home. Ah. Yes. So I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old who will be four in about six weeks. And we encourage them and even the preschool that they attend they reinforce teaching them how to identify their feelings. Wow. You know, they might use like little pictures. I feel like this right now, or I feel like that right now. They'll do it on their own. Mommy, I feel nervous today. Well, why do you feel nervous? I don't like going to school. Well, why don't you like going to school? I don't like nap time. Okay, so you don't like nap time, mm -hmm. but nap time isn't all of school. And this actually is a great callback to the treading water and the sinking water Sometimes it's literally the size of a pea that can make you feel like you're drowning. I don't say to her like this, but I'm like, you're getting so overwhelmed by going to school because there's a 45 minute session in your day that you don't like. And that to me represent, and I wanted to go back to this because I think that this is important. When I was talking about the water, about the floor sinking from under you, the amount of water doesn't change. And so many times, I believe that what really is taking us out are the way that we try to put out what we think are fires and we start treading the water. When I start treading water and I start filling up my schedule and trying to do all these things, I'm just making it worse. Yep. And it's like, it's not even lucky. I'm like, I have just made this puddle feel like a raging river. When the truth is, I'm stressed out because, you know, and this is a real example, my husband has been working long hours in school, finishing up this architecture program, and I haven't had a hug from him in two weeks. Mm -hmm. That's why I feel lonely. Mm. And oftentimes, just recognizing, oh, I feel lonely. That's why I want to fantasize right now. That's why I'm trying to fill up my day right now. That's why I'm trying so hard to connect with a friend because I don't want to sit with my own thoughts because I feel lonely. And it hurts. So many, yes, and it hurts. 80% of the time when I identify why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, it diminishes the pain by that much. Wow. It's like, oh, this is the thing. When I don't know why I'm feeling an emotion, it makes me blind. But when I identify it, it's like I'm putting on the glasses and now I can see, oh, that's why I'm feeling this way. Okay. How can I not feel lonely? Call my husband and tell him, hey, I'm feeling lonely because I haven't had a hug from you. Oh, I'm so sorry, babe. I love you. I appreciate you. All good. <laughs> the water is leveled. The ground is no longer from But here's the thing. You know, sometimes I think about people who are in a marriage or in a home or in a relationship, some type of partnership where they don't have these tools at all. And they go on for years feeling this way. And it's like, oh, you know, I remember... And this is why it's so important to learn the language of not just your partner, but the people that you love, like their love language and how that my husband, he's an architect. So he's a blueprint thinker. So if I'm like, oh yeah, in the morning, we're going to go, we'll make the girls breakfast and then we'll go to the store or whatever we have to do for the day. And he's like, what time are we waking up? What are we making them for breakfast? Like, <laughs> You know what I mean? And it used to irritate me because I'm like, you're a grown man. Can't we just figure it out as we go along? Like, I'm just kind of like roll with the punches kind of thing. You know what I mean? And I'm like, Oh no, why would I diminish? And that's what we do. And that's what I did. I was diminishing his way and other people's way of talking and thinking because it didn't support the way I thought and the way I talked. And that was another thing that made me feel, because then I'd feel angry. You know what I mean? And I might start to give him a cold shoulder mm -hmm. or I might start to feel resentment. And all these things are just making the ground sink more and more and more and more. And it's like, if I would take a minute to show him some grace and give him space to be the human being that he is and I am not. You know what I mean? I don't have to make what is essentially, you know the term you make a mountain out of a molehill? I have just created this mountain out of, he says tomato and I say tomato. Mm. He fucking cares. Mm. Like we're talking about the same thing. Why get into the brass text of 
how it's being delivered, that all adds to the pressure, the unnecessary pressure. It's selfish. Oh, yeah. and addiction is so selfish. It is the most selfish thing that you can be involved in based on my experience. Like that was the most selfish way to live was being an addict. I would love it if you could just take me back to your diagnosis journey and how I know that you struggled with that initially. And then after that, it was, you got some more clarity. I'd love to just understand how that process made you feel more like, was it a positive thing getting that diagnosis? Was it a negative thing? Like, how did it impact your partner? Like, it sounds like he is so amazing and wonderful and supportive. I'd love to just understand how you navigated this with another person in your life. And I don't know if the children were around at this point, but yeah, because I think we keep these things so quiet, so hidden, so shameful. They're, so, they're wrapped with guilt and regret and all of these different things. And I'd also love to ask as well, your Christian with your faith and your relationship, did that add into the guilt that you felt as well? Such a great question. Oh, such a great question. <laughs> okay. So 2015, it's our five-year wedding anniversary. I started to say this earlier. We were arguing constantly. And I had been working somewhere. And one of my coworkers was very flirtatious. And at first, I was like, absolutely not. You know what I mean? I'm married. I didn't give in to his flirtatious vibes. Well, one of the deficits with fantasy sex addiction is that I wasn't sexually satisfied. Because when I would sleep with my husband, I had to think about someone else. And so there were many times where I'm like, well, instead of having sex with him, I'd rather just go watch porn and masturbate. So I was starting to feel like I want to have sex with someone that I can be present with, which is a lie. I wouldn't have been able to be present with anyone because mm. it would have happened with that person too. Mm. So long story short, I'm working with this person and this was like the end of 2014. And then January 2015, it's our five-year wedding anniversary. And I tell my husband I want a divorce. I'm like, I don't understand. And he knew that I was fantasizing. Oh. I told him at the beginning of our marriage, I was like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm fantasizing about other people when we have sex. How did he take that? Very well. Wow. Healthy man. Very well. Right? He was like, I don't know what to do, but I don't think it's something we should stop praying about. And that's what we did. And that's all we did. And I love the question about the faith because that's, I think, a common misconception for people that share the same faith as I do is that, oh, you just pray and everything will be fine. And that's not how life, that's not even what Jesus modeled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it takes work, it takes steps. So five-year wedding anniversary, I tell him that I want a divorce. Obviously he didn't take that well. At first he was fighting me on it. He's like, I think this marriage can work. I want us to get help, all the things. So I, I spoke to a friend of mine and I told her what I was going through. And to this day, I say it was the best advice that anyone could have given me at that time. She said, Nicole, I know that you want a divorce and I understand why the feelings are justified, but I want to encourage you to get to the root of why these things are happening and focus on getting the healing and addressing these issues. She said, because if you focus on the divorce, that's what you're going to move towards. Mm. And I was like, man, damn it. I knew that was God speaking to me. I was like, all right, I can't ignore this advice because I do love him and I want my marriage to work. I'm just exhausted. And sometimes people want to opt out of a relationship because not because it's the wrong relationship, but because they're exhausted. You were also carrying not only the pain of your existence in the water that we've spoken about, but then you were carrying the pain of a, I don't want to say failing, but like a struggling marriage, right? Yes. There was just more pain and you just wanted to escape. You were like, I just need yes. to be out of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I... A friend of mine had recommended a therapist. I was living in LA at the time with my husband. And I remember going to her office. And this is interesting. Before I went in her office, which was on the beach, I was on the beach. And I remember having a conversation with a couple of homeless people. And I was telling them about the love of God. And I had even prayed for a few of them, which I thought was really interesting because what I was about to face, I never would have imagined that someone who walks in that way has an addiction. I wasn't thinking in that way. So I sat down. I had a conversation with her. I told her about my marriage. I told her about my childhood experience. One of the things that I haven't mentioned yet, and this is very important, is that after my father did move back home, I think, I don't know, I was maybe nine, but by the age of 12, my mother, my father, my sister and I, we were taking a road trip to Tennessee and we stopped at a motel and they 
revealed to us that my father had a younger daughter. So essentially, he had cheated on my mother. And we had actually met her. Oh. But we didn't know she was our sister. And they also said to us, we needed to keep it a secret. Mm. That is when things ramped up for me fantasy-wise. Wow. As a matter of fact, that was the same summer that I think I started having phone sex. Ah, because the pain increased. There's more to carry. The water was higher. Yes. But I didn't, I wasn't correlating the two. I had no idea. I showed up at my aunt's house. Like, we got to our destination. Like, hey, Hey. having fun, da-da-da-da-da. Not even realizing that my spirit was like, oh my God. You know what I mean? Like being crushed. So I shared that with my therapist. And she said, okay, so that was another exposure to sex. I was like, wait, what? And she said, that's exposure to sex. I didn't think she said, well, no, you didn't think of it that way because you were a child. Mm. What happened was the result of sex. So you keep having these exposures to sexual experiences. And on top of that, you know, with my mother having been working a lot and having to leave us with babysitters, there were many inappropriate things that I was watching as a child that weren't pornography, but were slightly pornographic in nature. You know what I mean? So she's sharing all this with me. I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And so we schedule another session. So we had a total of four sessions. And I knew that this was going to be short-lived because this woman was doing this as a favor to my friend. She was normally $200 an hour, but she was seeing me for free, which was a blessing. Right. So we get down to the last session. A few days before the last session, my husband and I were talking and he was like, listen, if the issue is sex, we don't have to have sex. We can start over and just live as friends for now. So I tell my friends, if you want to get married, marry a man with self-control. Literally, that is what I say. My number one trait in a man is sexual discipline. It is so underrated, so misunderstood. No one understands how beautifully healing a man with self-control and self-discipline is. I am there with you. And to this day, it's really hard to describe what happened, but I just looked at him and I think maybe I must have thought, I don't want to do this. I'm just tired. I just want this to end. And so I told him, I need to go for a drive. So I went for a drive. I remember I drove up the hill. We were in LA. There was this hill that was right across the street. I drove up the hill. I parked my car and I called my coworker and I basically told him, I want to have sex with you. And I was expecting for him to send me his address and I was going to go to his house. Mm -hmm. And his response was, you don't want to do that, Nicole. It's only going to make things worse. And I respect marriage. Wow. I felt three things all at the same time. I was shocked. I was relieved. And I felt rejected. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm rejected. And he was like, I know I've met your husband too. He's like, I couldn't do that. Two days later, I called somebody else. And this time, I was hoping that he would read between the lines what I was asking for because I didn't want to risk that rejection again. And he wasn't getting what I was asking. So... I just left it alone and ended up getting out of the phone conversation. So it is my last session. We're literally wrapping the session up. And I hear in deep in me, tell her what happened. I had forgot, Louise. I had completely forgot. I had disassociated from both experience Mm. so grandly. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I said, oh. And so I told her what happened. And she looked at me like a light bulb went off. And she said, oh, Nicole, you have an addiction. (gasps) When she said that, I felt my mind couldn't conceive it, but my body was telling me she's right. Mm -hmm. It, It was just this experience that I felt. She said, that's sexual compulsive behavior. You have an addiction and you need to get into a 12-step program. Wow. And I looked at her and I said, oh my God. She said, I won't be able to treat you because I'm a bereavement counselor and you need to see someone who specializes in addiction. Mm. And so I sat with what she said. I shared it with my husband, which by the way, we did stop having sex. We didn't have sex for 16 months. And it made a difference, by the way. It improved our friendship. I shared with my husband and I said, I need to go to a 12-step program. And he said, okay. I went to the first meeting and Luis, everyone, I didn't talk. Everyone that spoke, even though you go and it's like, hi, I'm a sex addict or I'm a love addict or I, which is limerence, I believe, or I'm a fantasy addict. 
because it's some fantasy addiction isn't all sexual. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But they're all tied to... Because sex physically, I believe, gives most people the highest level of pleasure. And so it's like, I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel, let me go to the highest level of pleasure I could possibly find. So as all of these people were talking, I saw myself. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what? why is everyone holding a mirror? No, our experiences were completely different. Wow. I heard this one woman talk about how she said, I was really proud of myself because I was at a party and... I didn't make a sexually charged joke because she was the person who always had to make it sexual. Oh. And I was like, oh, that was me. Oh my God. That oh. was me. Yes. And that's a compulsion to make that joke, to make it sexual for her. For her. It was a part. Because here's the thing what I'm learning is the root is the same yep. across the board, yep. but the fruit looks different for everyone. Yep. The symptoms look different for everyone. Yep. And that's that was a part of it for her. And so that was a part of it for me too. So my husband came to me with one. And then the last one I went to, I finally spoke. And I didn't know it was going to be my last one. And I said, I'm really confused as to why I'm here because I'm a Christian. There was a brand that I was expecting to shield me, not realizing that I'm a human being first. And there were other people that spoke up that were like, oh my gosh, yes, me too. What am I doing here? Like, I have a prayer life. I go to church, all the things, right? And so after that, I stopped going and I ignored it. I'm not going to call myself an addict because I'm not. I can do better, blah, 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 blah. So that was 2015, 2016, 2017. It got worse. It got much worse. I, so my husband and I had moved to Atlanta in 2016. And by 2017, I found out I was pregnant. During the time that I was pregnant with both my daughters, it was impossible for me to fantasize. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't do it. I believe it was a mix of like my body, like that motherly side of me protecting like. Yeah, because I was going to say, mate, at that point, if we take this back to what we were speaking about before, mm -hmm. at that point, your psychological vulnerability was not there. And maybe that's because you were so focused on something inside of you. Maybe it was chemical. Yes. Maybe the thing you were living, the experience alleviated that psychological vulnerability. Maybe you felt whole here when you'd felt empty that's there. Great. I don't know, but wow. Yeah, I believe that. I believe it's a mixture of multiple things, including what you just said. But after she was born and during my time of postpartum, I had depression. So it came back which got me even more depressed. And at that point, I said, I need help. And so I went to go see a therapist in 2018, and she thought that I was misdiagnosed because of my ADHD. Mm. And we started doing therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, and it helped me, but I was still fantasizing. And it wasn't until 2020 when the pandemic hit and I had to face, everybody had to face their demons. I started doing research and I came across those articles that I sent you and I sent it to my therapist and she actually apologized. She was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't considering addiction from perspective because she kept saying, I'm not out there sleeping around, so you're not an addict. And I'm like, okay, but something's not sitting right with me. But one of the things she did say early in our time of therapy was that she said, I believe that watching pornography and masturbating is your body's learned way of how to relax. 100%. And I do believe that she's right. 100%. Yes. yes. I think everyone's diagnosis journey is so different. And I think to yeah. hear how you did have to go through that journey of it taking a while to come to clarity and maybe misdiagnosis. And I just think that's really, really important for people to hear because it's not simple. And I think we've touched upon that a lot. Yes. Like, it, it's coming from so many places of psychological vulnerability and pain and nervous yes. system response and dopamine response and yes. safe spaces and unsafe spaces and control. And it shows up differently for everyone. Yes. And I think that is just so important that you've shared that because I do think yes. that people listening will really relate to some parts of this. Maybe they won't relate to other parts of that. And I think that yeah. Yeah. one thing I've learned from you is that it's no one size fits all. Just because you listen to this, Absolutely. And, right? You don't like relate to X, Y, and Z. That doesn't mean that you're not dealing with some level yes. of addiction. Would you say that that's yes. a true statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. And my thing is, I believe that in order to understand what you're going through, you need to seek someone who is on the outside looking in that has your best interest at heart. Because I can't see everything. 
You know what I mean? Like it took a village to help me get to this point. And I want to go back to, you said, you talked about the guilt with my religious beliefs and everything. It's funny because I tried to open up a few times to women that share the same faith as me when I didn't know what it was. And the response was very like, oh, I don't know what that is. Oh, I've never experienced that. Which made me feel less than, made me feel like I was far gone. And it just made me hide it even more. It made it worse. It made it worse. And I remember being in a time of prayer and I was led to, there's a Psalm, it's Psalm 91, and it talks about hiding in the secret place of the Lord, hiding under the shadow of his wing. And I knew that God was telling me, I need you to focus on this passage. This was in the summer of 2020. And I just started reading it every day, every day, every day. And then at the end of 2020 was when I started doing the research and I realized it is fantasy sex addiction. And by the beginning of 2021, I'll never forget this experience. And I think it's so important because people like to make, I believe that people like to make you feel guilty, but God doesn't. Like God does not like to make us feel guilty. And I remember at the top of 2021, I was supposed to have a session with my therapist and something happened, the wires got crossed and I couldn't have the session. And I was like, in a bad way. I was like feeling all the things. I was sobbing uncontrollably and I just immediately started to pray. And I was like, God, help me. I, I really want to fantasize right now. And I know that I'm not supposed to, but I really need you to help me. He's like, why do I want to fantasize? And he said, because that's where you like to hide. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh. And he said, but I'm your hiding place. That changed the game for me. But it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like, well, now every time I feel like fantasizing, I go and hide in God instead. It took time <laughs> to cultivate that. I had to make it a lifestyle. But when it came to dealing with that deep, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I need something that's really going to make me feel good. Mm. I'm so grateful that you've just shared that piece around the shame because I do think that even with it not being fantasy sex addiction, let's just take straight up sex addiction. I think that there's this narrative in society that you're just making excuses because you want to have sex with loads of different people and you just want to have sex all the time. And I think what we've learned from people that are going through that as well, where there's the physical, even though it applies to you in the same way, is that whatever the addiction is, it's coming from a driver within you. And you've shown us that it shows up so differently for everyone else. And for that, I'm grateful. And I think that there will be people listening to this that don't have a relationship with God, do not follow Christ. And I think that the things that you say there also can apply to them in their life, which is that there are communities of people out there, right? You know, you spoke before about the commune. I'm obsessed with that. Me and my sister-in-law, we always joke about that. We're like, how do we all just live together? Just help us raise each other's children because it's fucking hard. We just want to do this together. But I think that there are communities out there, and I think Open House is one of them, where being able to share something that you are ashamed of, to be able to bring the darkness to the light without shame, without judgment, without guilt, that is the first part of it. That is the first part of some people's healing journey. And I am so thrilled for you that you have been able to find this light despite the community around you initially trying to hold you back in the darkness, right? And I think that for me, for anyone that's listening to this that doesn't have a relationship with God, doesn't feel that safety with Him, I just want to say to you that there are communities out there, there are places, there are safe spaces for you where you will be able to find love and support and acknowledgement and understanding where nothing you will say can be shamed. Because I think when you step outside of those communities, and I'm not shaming the people that are more closed-minded because they're just living the life that they've been shaped and molded to, but I think what I want to say to people is it's about finding that space of safety and it's about finding that space of safety whilst also being guided by experts. Is there anything else that you would add to that? Yes, I love that. I absolutely love that because I am a component for love and healing for all people, regardless of their faith, or they may not ascribe to any sort of spiritual faith at all there's still healing available for them. There's still love available for them. I would venture to guess that most therapists 
aren't in it for the money. (laughs) And the ones who are, avoid them. But there are enough out there that truly care about you being healed. You know what I mean? It's like you said, the right community. Because even with my spiritual belief, it's not magic. Like people were the ones that were used as the vessel to get me, you know what I mean? And so it's like the most important thing you could do is surround yourself with the right people that are going to truly support you on your journey. And some of them might be strangers at first. Louise, thank you so much for having me on your show. This was so amazing to all the people listening. I hope that this was helpful and I hope that you find uh, what you need for your healing journey. My contact information is in the show notes. Please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I don't answer DMs, but you can email me. Absolutely. And um, I'm wishing you all the best, sending you all the love and light. Thank you, Louise. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And we will speak to you very soon.